If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrimple. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a quote, and then you can tell us where this quote comes from, because I find it very, very interesting. Okay, so here it goes. In warfare, in command, in sound judgment, and in administration, he had no rival or equal. He kept down the turbulent spirits of the Deccan and maintained his exalted position to the end of his life and closed his career in honour. History records no other instance of an Abyssinian slave arriving at such eminence. It's an extraordinary quote, and it's about the main subject of this episode, who is an extraordinary figure called Malik Amba. Now, Malik Amba starts his life in Ethiopia. He's captured as a slave. His, uh, his real name was originally Chapu. And he comes to India as a military slave. And what we're going to be talking about today is this strange institution that's totally counterintuitive about the slave kings, of which there were very many in Indian history, people who started their lives as slaves but ended it as rulers of great chunks of India. In the West, we think of these things as polar opposites. Slaves and kings are not words that have a hyphen in the West, but they do in the Islamic world. Uh, and not just uh, once or twice, but over quite a lot of the Middle East, over quite a lot of the Middle Ages. And we have here to tell us about it. Well, Anita, I'll hand over to you to do the introduction. Oh, well, that'd be my great honour, because a man I, I hugely respect. Uh, we have Manu Pillai with us, historian of India, author of the, and I really can say fantastic book, Rebel Sultans, which tells the story of the Deccan from the end of the 13th to the start of the 18th century. We're really delighted you could take the time to speak to us, Manu. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Before we get into you know the story of Malagamba, which really is a tale of the early 17th century, let's talk about contemporary stuff, because you told us both something startling while we were doing the sound sound check before we come to record. And it was that your family owned slaves, which in itself is like a, <gasps> wow. And you said until so recently that you met family members of the slaves that your, your family held. Tell us more about that. So in fact, you know, my, my ancestral village in Kerala, which is on the southwest coast of India, we still have people who live there who were, who were descended from these families that are linked to us. And, you know, slavery is not a word anybody's comfortable using anymore because now many of them are friends. Many of them, you know, we meet at feasts and so on. But there is this rather uncomfortable history that exists between them and us. Uh, and when I was growing up in the, in the 90s and we you know, come down to Kerala for our summer vacations. My grandmother had a lady to help around the house and her name was Vilmbi. 
And I always found the name very fascinating because, you know, we all have these names that have all kinds of Sanskrit meanings and so on. And Velumbi simply meant fair woman or white woman. And I thought, what what an odd name. And then I asked a question to my grandmother saying, why is it, why should this old lady called Velumbi? To which she told me that it's, well, you know, the community in which she was born back in the day, they weren't permitted proper names. So what would happen is that anytime a baby was born into this family, somebody from that family would show up. They'd stand at the edge of our estate, not allowed to even look at the house because that would ritually defile the house. And they would shout out from there in Malayalam, Krati Kravitu, which is almost like saying she has laid it. Or you can't use words like birth or, or delivery of a child and so on. And whoever was sitting in the portico or the main porch of the house, which would usually be one of the older male members, they would come up in, with some name and that would be the name of the child. So in her case, it was Velumbi. There was another man called Kartagutan, which simply means black boy. You know, those are the kinds of names that were given to them. They... Although slavery as an institution was abolished in the mid-19th century, for all practical purposes, people continued to be linked to land. People continued to serve the families that once owned them. And this didn't, legislation didn't mean there was much of a material change in their actual lives. So even in my childhood, there were still older people who'd been part of that system. They were essentially bonded laborers attached to the land, legally free, but practically not so much, and still weighed down by centuries of ritual and, and, and ceremonial pollution and all kinds of ideas. And you know, it's a form of pre-dial or aggressive slavery that existed in Kerala. So, I mean, honestly, that revelation and just the candor with which you're sharing it, and we're grateful for it, but it's kind of shaken me to my bone marrow. Until what point in India were human beings bought and sold? Land. Oh, very recently. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in, in British Malabar, which was further up the coast, they abolished slavery in 1843. Uh, but of course, there were lots of princely states, which were under Indian Maharajas, and many of them refused to immediately do what the British were doing. So it meant that there were a lot of negotiations and, and a lot of back and forth with these local rulers within the subcontinent. So a state like Travancore in South Kerala abolished slavery only in 1855, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the formal date. Manu, I think what you're saying will surprise, if not shock, not just listeners uh, from around the world, but people in India, because I've often heard it said that in ancient India and through most of Indian history, there have been no slaves here. How far can you trace back slavery in Indian history? I think we can trace it very far back because if I'm not mistaken, Emperor Ashoka, the, the great Mauryan emperor, you know, before the common era, I think the second century BCE, he refers, I think, in one of his rock edicts to the proper treatment of slaves or about or give some kinds of instructions how slaves mm. are meant to be treated, which implicitly suggests that slavery did exist in this time. The Sanskrit text that we call Dharma Shastra, which is you know, the source of Hindu law, as it were, many of them over 2000 years old, they refer to slavery in different forms. So there's slavery by birth, there's slavery in times of famine, there's slavery because of debts, there's sometimes even slavery if you've lost a bet and you've ended up becoming a slave to a third party. So Sanskrit texts that go back 2,000 years or even more than 2,000 years do refer to slavery as an institution. Now, this is important because there are also texts that, that some people point to, such as the visiting Greek ambassador Megathenes, who comes to the Mauryan court at the moment exactly you're talking about. And he actually says there is no slavery in India. This historians now believe to be just plain wrong. It's a traveler not understanding what he's seeing. Is that right? 
It is, I think. And also, Megasthenes was also, I think, restricted in which part of India he was in. He was somewhere in eastern India, if I'm not mistaken. And if at all he was referring to something, it's possible he was referring to something very local. But if, again, I'm not wrong, I think he also does refer to elsewhere in India, all kinds of magical qualities and people and things like that. I, I think I, I have that right. That Megasthenes does in his account, include a lot of things that seem not just inaccurate. To be way off. Completely way off, yeah, exactly. And what of, I mean, as, as, a, as a woman and a feminist, I have heard whispers of sort of industrialised sex slavery that took place during, is it the Chola dynasty? And and what do we have on, on record of, of sex slavery in the Chola dynasty? And what did it look like? I think Daud Ali's written something about this. Who is Daud Ali, for those who don't know? Daud Ali is a scholar in, in, based in America. He's written a great deal on courtly practices. He's written a great deal on the Indian subcontinent as well as the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Great, great scholar based in Philadelphia. Yes. And he uh, has suggested that this was an institution linked to women and to the slavery of women in a somewhat sexual context. It's an interesting provocative article because, you know, the... This is obviously something not, lots of people are uncomfortable with, not something people want to discuss. What I think is beyond question is that you find on the walls of Chola temples claims about capturing women. Yeah. Uh, this is where the, the, the origin of, of, I think, this uh, idea, because several Chola kings, in their sort of very grandiose statements about what they've conquered and where they've been, the same inscriptions that talk, for example, about the Chola raids, astonishingly, on Srivijaya and Sumatra, that you have um, naval expeditions leaving India and, and attacking Indonesia. But those same very grandiose inscriptions proclaiming the victories of the Chola kings talk at great length and several times about the capture of women. And these, and these women were then used, so it's claimed, for breeding purposes, to breed further troops. Oh, my word. I mean, I, it's just all so unpleasant. It's also, it is fair to say, a political hot potato because there are some people who say, no, that's not true. They just, they just were an elevated culture. They didn't do it. They wouldn't have done it. They couldn't have done it. And, it, and this is a big lie. I think that's the thing, right? People, if you use blunt terms like sex slavery, it really makes people very uncomfortable. But it's essentially what the core practice was. Now, you can you can couch it in all kinds of prettier words. You can give it an institutional name that sounds better, but at the core, what, what was happening? And perhaps that was a form of, of sexual slavery. And it's not completely unprecedented because, again, if you look at the old Sanskrit texts, you do find references to kings making gifts of 10,000 elephants and 10,000 girls to their purohits, for example, uh, purohits being their, their, their spiritual preceptors. Mm-hmm. Now, you can take the numbers as exaggeration, but clearly the presence of animals as well as human beings and specifically mm. women, it didn't mean these were women necessarily to just sweep their homes or whatever. There's, there is something, there is a connotation there, which, you know, is open to debate, which people might not like, but it's certainly something we must grapple with. Manu, then we've got to grapple with yet another very thorny issue, which is, is when the Islamic conquests begin after the 13th century. You have the slave kings of Delhi, starting w- with Qutbuddin Aibab. What's going on there? How can you be a slave king? What, what's meant by that? 
Well, this is to begin with. It's not. It's not slavery as we know in the American context, but slavery in a very military context. Because often kings, especially in cultures where there's clan membership, where there's membership by caste and 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 such similar institutions, it becomes very difficult to sometimes trust your own relatives and kin, because potentially everybody is a claimant for the throne. Potentially everybody is as legitimate as you are. Potentially your sons could turn around and murder you, which has happened in Indian dynasties and all. kinds of political spaces around the world so you in in a, in a situation in a political situation where there is a trust deficit often relying on outsiders was a given it was a formula that became very popular uh, so whether it was in egypt with the mamluks there or in india with the so called slave dynasty or even in to come back to kerala in the south in the 18th century when when the local ruler was conquering all the other states in the region he brought in mercenaries from across the hills in tamil country and got them to do his dirty business because here the institution stood in his way whereas people from the outside wouldn't necessarily Uh, respect those terms in the same way. Yeah, keep going. So, so the idea is that these guys are uh, are more trustworthy because they're dependent on you. Is that they're is that dependent what? on you because they're brought in from somewhere else? All their connections to their home homelands have have been severed. All they've got is from you. You're the source of bounty. You're the source of of prestige, position, all of that. Which means that. in theory they they're entirely loyal to you of course in practice this may not always work out that way but that was the theory there is a there is a wonderful quote isn't there from a seljuk minister who once said one obedient slave is better than 300 sons yes, for the latter desire their one. father's death the former his master's glory uh, look th- this leads us neatly to the man that we are talking about malik amber before we talk about the man himself i think it's important to understand what the world looked like so he is as william said in in the introduction born in ethiopia in the 16th century and at that time was there a slave system operating widely throughout ethiopia what was going on here There was something happening there because clearly there were slave traders who were going in and abducting young boys and then shipping them off to Baghdad or other parts of the Middle East, which were then transit points from where these boys would be would be exported to other parts of the world. A lot of them to to the Indian subcontinent. Now, you know, because William mentioned the slave dynasty earlier, that generation we're talking about Turkic slaves. These are Turkic slaves who have been brought in by land often, and they've come accompanying all kinds of other warriors, and they eventually rise to become kings. And this again, this sort of Turkish slave kings, they exist also at the same time in Egypt. The Mamluks, Hultun yes. Baybars, for example, he's of Turkic stock, but he ends up being the ruler of Egypt. Yes. So in in India, what happens is you've got Mahmud of Ghor coming in and invading uh, parts of northern India. When he dies, it's his slave Kutubuddin Aybak who's been left behind in Delhi, who establishes an independent sultanate there. When Kutubuddin Aybak dies in twelve ten, I think, of a, or during a polo game or something, he has an accident. He ends up he's succeeded by his son-in-law, who was also a slave in an earlier period, and then ended up marrying Kutubuddin's daughter. Much later down in the century, you again have a Turkic slave, Sultan Balban, uh, succeeding. When the earlier slave dynasty dies out, this chap comes in and 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 seizes power. But these are all Turkic slaves. By the time we come to Malik Amber in the in the 15th century, we're talking about a huge industry of Ethiopian men who were trained in battle, who were often brought off to the Indian subcontinent and end up being, uh, you know, end up diffused throughout the Indian subcontinent. And this, in fact. Traces of this exist even in earlier times. You've got—I forget who said it. It might be Ibn Battuta, who basically refers to how pirates were afraid of ships where which carried these Abyssinian men. 
It's a lovely quote that because these guys are super fierce. Yes, uh, in in the Delhi in the in the slave dynasty of Delhi, in fact, there was a female ruler called Sultan Razia. Uh, she was toppled, of course, for being a woman, but also evidently for having a lover who was Ethiopian. His name was Yakut, and he's supposed to have been of Ethiopian origin. Now, that's a good question as to how he ended up there. Uh, in in Uttar Pradesh, which is today the the hotbed of Hindu nationalism in India, there's a place called Jaunpur where there was the Sharki dynasty founded somewhere in the in the late 15th century, again founded by an Ethiopian man who happened to be a eunuch in one of the North Indian courts. And, and, and I'm using the word eunuch in courts uh, because that's what you see in the records. And, and he ends up fi- founding a dynasty here, which is then succeeded by Hindu slaves and then their family. In Bengal, in, 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 in the next century, you've got a short-lived Hapshi dynasty. The very word Hapshi comes from Abyssinia, which is Ethiopia. And that's why they're called Hapshis in India, as late as the 18th century. So when you use the term Hapshi, uh, Manu, what exactly do you mean by that? Habshi, it comes from Habas or Abyssinia, and I think it, it was a word used for people who came from that part of the world. So when these slaves are brought to India, everybody knew they came from Habas, and that's why they were called Habashis, and that becomes Habshi over a period of time. So let's start with Malik Amber. I mean, just who were his people? Who, Where did he come from before he was taken? Malakamba, as far as we know, belonged to something called the Oromo tribe, uh, somewhere in eastern Ethiopia, and that's where he was taken from. Are they pagan or Christian Ethiopians? I think they're not Christian. That's why they're also on the fringes of Ethiopian society. They were not part of the mainstream, which would also perhaps have made it easier to enslave them. And, you know, I, I think the existing powers in Ethiopia would not have minded. That's that's my impression, too, that you, that you have a certain amount of tolerance of slave raids on the pagan tribes, but not on the converted Christians. When you talk about Ethiopia and the slave trade that existed there, who were the slavers? Who who was coming over? How were they picking up people? Who were they picking up and what did they do with them? As far as we know, there would have been local slavers. For, with Malikambar, for example, he must have been about 10. The, the assumed date is we don't have a clear date of birth for him. But the general date of birth is that he was somewhere, born somewhere around 1548. And when he's about 10 or 12 years old, he was abducted or potentially sold by someone in his family, two slavers like this. And from there, he was picked up and, and sent off. I, uh, I think he had a stop somewhere before he ended up in Baghdad. And it was from Baghdad that his subsequent trip to India takes place some years later. And in the course of this this movement from Ethiopia to the Middle East and then, of course, to India, what happens is also conversion to Islam. Because I think that was another way of creating some kind of glue between all these men uh, and making them part of this Islamic network, creating space for, for them to join these Islamic courts that, that dominated from uh, West Asia all the way to the, to the, uh, to the you know, beyond the Indian subcontinent. So conversion takes place from Chapu, he becomes Ambar. Uh, 1571 is when he ends up in India. Okay, but conversion, I mean, could be seen by some as a gift because it allows you to progress, because if you are part of this one Islamic family, was it voluntary or involuntary? Why? I mean, was it? would it be seen as something that was given to preferential slaves or seen as something that, again, is another means of eradicating somebody's entire history and who they are? I think perhaps both, because, you know, considering these these boys were 
abducted when they were pretty young, uh, you know, adolescents at most, if not children. Uh, I don't think they would have been entirely, this wouldn't, have, this wouldn't have been a transaction that was entirely consensual. And yet I think it gave them a sense of identity because having been cut off from everything, from their families, from especially from women folk, when they eventually, wherever they ended up later, they didn't have women with them. So they'd end up marrying local women. So having some kind of identity in the absence of their earlier birth identity was something that mattered to them. Uh, and of course, you know, just uh, the fact that they became part of a political network of great influence, right? across the Arabian Sea, through, you know, across the Bay of Bengal, and a huge swathe of the world. So it was, it was a form of creating identity, but also becoming part of that political economy. So do you expect that when he arrives in 1571 in India, Malikamba is a sort of cowering slave being beaten by his master? Or is he already part of a sort of elite? Uh, is, he, is he a sort of swaggering warrior uh, arriving, knowing that he's got a career ahead of him or somewhere in between the two? I think he, it must have been somewhere in between the two. From everything we know, he was not somebody who served in any capacity but a military capacity, which meant that somewhere he managed to get some kind of elementary military training. Uh, the person who buys him in India, ironically, is also a Habshi, is also an Abyssinian origin man who also had come off to India as a slave. And he had risen through the ranks in what is called the Ahmednagar Sultanate, which is in the Deccan on the, on, towards the west coast of India. And he became the Peshwada. He was the minister of the Sultan of Ahmednagar, himself a black man. He's the one who actually purchases Malikambar with a whole other, you know, a pretty large set of people who've been brought in as the latest imports from Baghdad. Manu, in an earlier episode of our, uh, our slavery series, we talked to Mary Beard, who was talking about in the Roman world, how there was this whole caste of slaves who were gladiators. Do you get the impression that sort of Malikamba is being trained up very specifically uh, as part of a warrior world? Or, or is he, you know, could he be expected to, to do administration or, 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 you know, become a civil servant or, or collect taxes or something? The possibility was there because we do have evidence of other Ethiopian origin men in India becoming revenue farmers. You see them becoming regents of kingdoms. You see them in charge of forts. You see them as seal bearers. The famous Mahmud Gawan, who was the, the minister of the Bahmani Sultanate, a Persian uh, nobleman, his seal bearer was an, an African man. So there are, there are, of course, other positions that they held. But often these positions came after many years of military service, to, to become a regent or to become a revenue farmer in control of a whole province meant that you'd put in a certain number of military years, risen in the ranks, and then become part of the local aristocracy, often by marrying local women from elite communities in India, and then established yourself. So I think Ambar would have landed here knowing very much that he was meant to be a fighter. And he was for right. most of his career till he was almost middle-aged. He was a sort of mid-level or even lower-level military entrepreneur. So I, 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 this is something that I need to do to get my head un, uh, under a subject, but I, I love looking at images. And there is a, a, an image that's painted by a, a courtly painter, a, a Mughal courtly painter of, of Malikamba. And I, he, now, I, the one I'm looking at is, is of an older man, but you can see just the power in him. I mean, he, he is very, very dark skinned. He has incredibly broad shoulders. I mean, this is in middle age, so he's got the middle age spread that uh, we all <laughs> fear <laughs> in our lives. Uh, but, but I mean, as a 20 year old man, he would have been selected because of his physicality. I mean, if that was his destiny to be a fighter, he would have been picked out because he was strong, because he looked as though he could handle himself in battle, right? 
Yes, and in fact, we do have a contemporary, a traveler from Europe, if I, Europe, if I'm not mistaken, who says that he was tall and strong of stature. So clearly, this was a very tall, physically imposing man. Uh, he would have made a strong impression, even uh, perhaps even stronger than when he was middle-aged, when he was a young fighter. And I think that that definitely worked in his favor. This is this wonderful Dutch traveler, isn't it? Cornelius. Is it called Cornelius van Ellison? Yeah. And he and he's shipwrecked, and he comes across Malikumba and, and gives this wonderful sketch of this character. The the only <laughs> the only thing he doesn't like about him is his eyes, saying that they are white glossy Classy. eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that quote. Do we have any accounts? I'm, again, I'm looking at another um, miniature. This is uh, Malikumba meeting uh, Murtaza Nizam Shah the second. He towers above everybody else in the picture. I mean, he's a good sort of half a half a human higher than everybody around him, which <laughs> is unusual for a, a, a Mughal courtly painter to give him that kind of stature. So to actually make, you know, because we've, we've done, we've done episodes before where we've had uh, portraits painted in the Mughal court of a teeny tiny King James in the corner, you know, <laughs> sort of trying to shrink the influence of Britain by, by diminishing the stature. The fact that he isn't diminished, even by his enemies in portraiture, is telling, isn't it? I think it's symbolic also of the fact that he was the real power in the Ahmednagar Sultanate of the Deccan. Uh, the Mughals, of course, their enemies, and for 25 years they kept trying to conquer the Deccan. And for those 25 years, the one man standing as a wall between them and the conquest of southern India was Malik Ambar. And he was taller than the Sultan who actually reigned. The Sultans were just puppets in his hands. So, Manu, this is the point that we should pause and just sketch the political divisions in India. We're in, we're in the 1570s. The, what, the Portuguese have just arrived in Goa. The Mughals are now running North India. And there is a scatter of smaller sultanates in the middle of India, the Deccan sultanates. This is where we're talking about. Yes. There's three sultanates. There's Ahmednagar towards the west coast. Further south, there's Bijapur in what is now largely the state of Karnataka, but also parts of what is now Maharashtra state in India. And then on the eastern side, you have the, the sultanate of Golconda. And Golconda is, of course, famous for its diamond mines. There's apparently a small town in America named Golconda because of the, the fame of the Golconda diamonds and so on. And all of these sultans themselves, by the way, come from mixed families. So the Nizam Shahis or the dynasty that rule in Ahmednagar, they're partially of Brahmin Hindu descent of the highest caste. But their women, the, the women they married came partly from Persia. But we also know of two sultans, at least, who were mothered by black Begums who came from Africa. So, you know, way back somewhere in the in the 16th century, we had black princesses uh, and, and queen mothers in the Nizam Shahi Sultanate in Ahmednagar. What, what was the attitude? I mean, because even now, India is such a colorist country where, you know, if you're wheatish, <laughs> when people advertise in matrimonial columns, they always say their daughter is of wheatish complexion, oh, which yes. means they're fair skinned. There's a great premium put on, on having lighter skin. Back in those days, was there prejudice against darker skin? Was it as colorist as it remains today? There was, because if you look at the, the kind of remarks the Mughal Emperor Jahangir's left of Malikambar himself, he often refers to his skin, the dark-faced man, you know, the wicked man with black skin. You know, there's, there's, I, I don't remember the exact quotes, but there is always a reference to darkness when Malikambar comes into the picture. And I think that's not just darkness in some metaphorical sense, but he's also playing on the fact that his chief rival uh, in the south is a black man. We also know that these two sultans of the Ahmednagar Sultanate who were mothered by, by black women, they didn't have it easy. Their, their reigns were relatively short-lived. They did have support of all the black uh, noblemen and troops of the Ahmednagar Sultanate, but there was also a very strong Persian faction, and the Persians did not like 
the the African faction. So there's there's definitely rivalry on 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 racial grounds in these sultanates also. And we haven't we haven't put a number on this presence. I mean, I still don't have a sense of how many people from you know Ethiopian descent or Abyssinian descent are in India at the moment. Do we have any idea of numbers? If I had to give it a number, we do have a reference, say around 1610 or so, uh, about Malikamba's army, which says that he commands a total of about 50,000 people. 40,000 of them are described as Marathas, which is local Hindus, you know, sons of the soil as it were. But 10,000 are supposedly Hapshis. So 10,000 of them, one-fifth of his army was black men. The other uh, four-fifths were Indians. So I would imagine that gives us some sense of what the total number was uh, in India at that time, at least, you know, in terms of military composition. And, and I mean, there are certain places you can go today. I've been to the uh, the fort of Janjira, for example, where you still see a lot of, of black Indians, uh, clearly oh, yes. people of, of black African descent. Are there many, are there many places like that where you, where you can see people who are still ethnically quite different from the, the local Marathas, for example? There are in Gujarat and Maharashtra, again, on the west coast of India, but as far as I know, these are later immigrants. Some say as late as the 18th century. The the Janjira family that you mentioned is actually interesting because they they originated in the 1480s from an African uh, general who was sent by the Sultan of Ahmednagar to conquer this fort. He did, and his family continued to stay there all the way till 1947. And even under the British, they were what was called an 11 gun salute princely state, and they were they were styled Nawabs and so on by then. But even if you look at their photographs, you can tell that they're clearly of African descent. So that's a noble family that's continued. What's wonderful too is if you go to their tombs, which are incredibly beautiful, they sit on this wonderful elevated platform looking down over the sea through palm trees. It's one of the most beautiful places uh, I've seen in that region. Uh, And they have around this fort African boabab trees, which I've never seen anywhere else in India, Mm. lining in a ceremonial square uh, this mortuary center. And, and and just I mean just getting back to Malakamba, I feel like we've sort of leapfrogged something that I I still am trying to understand. That you know I I understand the you know forgive me, but I have a, a child the same age. You know, a frightened little boy of about twelve being taken. He's then traded through the Middle East and through Baghdad. He ends up being traded and traded until he gets to India. And then we've suddenly leapt to he is the great Malakamba that the Mughals <laughs> fear. I I still I need to understand his path of travel. How is it? that he is then trained, promoted in in a what would have been a, a pretty tough, masculine, and also, I mean, fairly racist, as you describe it, environment. How does he rise through the ranks to get to the point where he is running a sultanate? Just just talk us through that that line of travel. So as I said earlier, it's in 1571 that we know he arrives in India. He's obviously in his early 20s at this time, a very young man, one of many you know, African soldiers serving all kinds of military entrepreneurs and leaders in the area. So his first master is the Peshwa, the minister of the Sultan of Ahmednagar. Now this Peshwa is executed by the Sultan a few years down the line. And what's interesting is that Ambar, even though it's been less than five or six years, I think, after Ambar joined him, Ambar clearly made an impression because he had, he was senior enough for the Peshwa's widow to release him from, from slavery. She says, look, my husband's dead. He's been executed. You are now free to go do what you want. 
Now, for a large part of his life, for the next couple of decades, nearly, we find that Ambar is a sort of mid-level military military figure in the region. He's got about a hundred and fifty cavalrymen. He's got this band that's with him, and he keeps moving from one sultanate to the other, depending on who takes his services. And and he is now free by this point. Um, he is free. Uh, yes, his, yeah. his his first master's widow frees. He becomes a military entrepreneur in his own right. Briefly, he serves the Ahmednagar Sultanate for a while. He serves the Sultan of Mijapur. He's sort of flitting between. He's courts. a mercenary. He's a mercenary. He is a mercenary, and he's not. He's not moved up the ranks very much as the number of people serving him stays more or less constant. And among the people serving him are other black African slaves from the same military world. Yes, they they would be Habshis. The the one fifty cavalrymen were mostly Habshis, but what creates opportunity for him is in the fifteen nineties when the Mughal conquest of South India begins through these Deccan sultanates. So as, as as William was referring to earlier, you've got North India under Mughal domination. You've got the Ahmednagar Sultanate abutting the Mughals, and then you've got these two other sultanates as well, Bijapur and Golconda, and obviously Ahmednagar sits first in the line when the Mughals want to come down into South India. So in the 1590s, the Ahmednagar court is already in disarray. There's all kinds of succession disputes. There complete chaos. On top of that, Emperor Akbar in 1595 orders an invasion. It's an initial kind of recce, really, because they, they don't intend to really come down into their territories. But there is defeat inflicted on them uh, soon after. By 1600, the capital of the Ahmednagar Sultanate has fallen. So the kingdom's capital is gone. There's various princelings floating about. There's different power interests all over the place. And this is when Malik Ambar emerges as a great hero because he was clearly some kind of you know, fabulous military strategist. He clearly had talent. He was physically impressive. And now you start seeing that the numbers of people serving him start to go up. So, you know, from 150 people for much of his career, for a good 20 odd years, he moves up to perhaps 300 people. But by the late 1590s, he's got a thousand people following him. Soon that turns into 3,000. By the turn of the 17th century, he's got 7,000 people. And these are not just Habshis. These are local Hindu Marathas as well, who realize that their interests can also be met and served by allying with this, this star and who's, who's clearly on the rise. Manu, th- thank you very much for, for, for the trajectory there. We're going to come back after the break, where we're going to find out what it was about this man and his battle style, which made him and marked him out for greatness. Join us after this short break. Welcome back. So just before the break, um, Manu is giving us this very clear trajectory of a man who is destined. Well, I mean, it's not clear that he's destined for greatness, but he is a very effective mercenary. And William, I mean, you're fascinated in, in just how he manages to stamp his his mark on battle. Yes. And, and this, I think, is, is why he's an important figure in the Deccan, is that he doesn't confront the Mughals straight up, does he, Manu? He, he doesn't meet them in battle, lining up cannon to cannon, cavalry regiment to cavalry regiment. He invents the kind of guerrilla tactics which will later be used by the Marathas to such effect against the Mughals. Yes, because I think Malikampa realized that he didn't, he couldn't match the Mughals in terms of numbers or sheer financial resources. So the Mughals were this great big empire in the north. They had the resources to really put men into the field. Whereas the Deccan Sultanates were rich, but not anywhere where they could compete on terms of equality with the Mughals. So what happens is Malikampa starts using the landscape to his advantage. The Deccan, for those who visited, is a very dry upland 
country. You know, there's there's hills, there's dry terrain, there are great fortresses, and it's 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 a difficult, rough kind of space. So even the warriors here were sort of raised to be these rough and hardy figures on their on their local country horses, sort of you know learning that kind of life and learning to survive in that kind of environment. And he starts using this to his advantage. So the Mughals are handicapped because they have these great massive armies with huge baggage trains and dancing girls and all kinds of, you know, this massive retinue that comes along with the army coming down into the, into this mountainous zone. And all Malikambar has to do is show up every now and then from one of these, you know, hillsides, come down, attack the baggage train, cause complete chaos and turmoil there, and then retreat. After about three days, he, he reappears from a completely different direction, attacks the head of the army, and then disappears again. And this becomes a popular means that, that eventually ends up bogging down the Mughals in the Deccan. And some would argue it even shatters the Mughal Empire a couple of generations later, because the locals in this region use this to their advantage. They use the terrain to their advantage, where you don't necessarily need numbers, you just need to be clever, and you just need to use the, the, the geography to your advantage. Just to give a, a kind of visual picture of the sort of terrain we're talking about, describe these extraordinary fortresses, which later become associated with Shivaji and the Marathas. Well, to see, I mean, it, it's difficult to even trek up some of these fortresses. Their locations obviously on top of hills. Uh, often they've got cliffs that you simply can't scale. So those sides, anyway, no enemy can come up. The other sides are fortified very, very well, very sturdy walls that have survived all these centuries. Often, if you look at a fort like Dolatabad, even the pathway to the fort is very, very narrow to the main gate of the fort. So there's no question of a large army being able to move up. It's really just uh, smaller files of men who are able to move up, which means even a smaller army can meet them and make an effort to push them down the, the, the slope, as it were. So I think the fortresses definitely helped. The landscape and the terrain definitely helped. And Malikampar, as I said earlier, was also a very good strategist. He knew exactly what to do, how to do it, and he kept his army very loyal to him. Uh, you find this even you know after the, the Mughal conquest really picks up and the Marathas rise in the same region. All these sultanates collapse, the Mughals have defeated the sultans, and then it's the local Hindu Marathas who are leading the resistance. And you find that they pay tribute to Malikambar, the great Maratha hero Shivaji, oh, really? in a court oh, right. poem, compares Malikambar to the gods. Uh, he says he was as bright as the sun. These are the kinds of terms that are used. Shivaji says that. Shivaji himself says that. Shivaji in his court poem that commissioned gosh, in the 1670s in the Sanskrit language wow. uh, does pay tribute to Malikambar. And Malikambar, right. one of the people who served him, who worked with Malikambar, was Shivaji's grandfather. So you can see that Shivaji didn't emerge in isolation. The great Maratha hero was in some ways a political successor to Malikambar, which is quite something, right? This great Hindu icon today was in many ways inspired by a man born in Ethiopia, who was born Chapu in the Oromo tribe and then lived as a slave before ending up in India. So when we say Shivaji, that's a name that's going to resonate a lot in India. But for those here, who do we have an equivalent in European history of how big Shivaji looms? No, I don't think there's anyone who equals Shivaji or Shivaji in modern Hindu nationalist myth, certainly. In Shivaji is regarded today as the man who turned the tide back on 400 years of Islamic invasions. And there is a, a historical basis for this. He took on the Emperor Aurangzeb. He reinvents a kind of Hindu kingship. He brings Brahmins from uh, Varanasi. He summons the local spirits of the mountains. And he begins a whole new 
form of Hindu kingship, which fights back against this 400 years of Islamic dominance. He attacks the Mughal port at Surat. And over the next 100 years, his successors and the wider confederacy of Marathas will reach as far as Attic in what's now Pakistan in their northernmost strike. It's actually very hot currency with the present administration. He is a embodiment of sort of Hindu muscularity, the bulwark against the, the, the invasion of Islam. I mean, he is, he is a... He's a very popular figure today. More than a figure, he's considered in many quarters to be a god. He is. And all you need to do is enter enter uh, Mumbai or Bombay. You'll find the airport, the, the museums, <laughs> lots of people, places named after <laughs> Chhatrapati Shivaji because he is a cultural icon. And I, I think there's nobody in Maharashtra, at least in Western India, who towers yeah. over Shivaji in terms of that kind of icon. But Shivaji's grandfather served Malakamba yes. and, and Shivaji himself credits his own military prowess. It, it raises two questions in my mind. Number one, it seems like this man is, is an extraordinary fighter, which makes me think that there must be many accounts of what he was actually like. Like as a, you know, it's always my test of would I want to hang out with him, Manu? I mean, is he, you know, what kind of human was he, first you of all? probably wouldn't because oh. he was also a very brutal figure. Uh, for example, during his ascent in the Deccan, as I said, the earlier uh, Sultanate of Ahmednagar collapsed. There's opportunity for him to move up, but that also means there are others who see opportunity. So if you read Richard Eaton's book uh, called The Social History of the Deccan, you'll read how Malik Ambar had a rival, popularly called Raju Dakhni, and he, he essentially had to make sure this rival got out of the way and he liquidated everybody else he stood who stood in his way he got a, a puppet sultan installed from the old royal family a little boy the boy grows up and starts asking questions firstly malik Ambar gets him married to his daughter so again what you see is an african slave's daughter a black woman becoming the the queen of bijap of, of ahmednagar Except that the son-in-law, who's the, the sultan, he doesn't really like his father-in-law. He realizes he's being treated as a puppet and starts asking questions. So Malik Ambar murders him. Simple, you know, done. He installs a puppet again. This puppet also grows up, also starts questioning Malik Ambar, and Malik Ambar bumps him off also. So this was clearly about power. Malik Ambar had no loyalty to the king as such. The king was just an instrument for him to wield power. He was the man who was in charge. So okay. I don't think you'd be having a, a drink with Malakamba no. down at the, the the riverside. No, no, uh, no, no. I, I think I think I'll pass on on hanging out with Malakamba. <laughs> also, also, he was a very very devout Muslim. He certainly didn't drink. He didn't allow his army men to drink. He prayed almost every day with them. There are accounts about how he would join them in the prayers and lead the prayers as well. So he was a very devout, very austere Muslim. And I've heard that if if any of his soldiers was caught inebriated. Uh, having drunk too much, he would pour molten lead down their throat. Yes, public spectacle. Violence is public spectacle to send a message. Yeah, I'll give it a miss then. Okay, well, <laughs> crossing that out of my day planner. Um, but also what, what is surprising to me is that the Mughals were really, I mean, they were just lumbering and, not, and they didn't learn, did they? Because we've in previous episodes, we've talked about Muhammad Shah Rangila turning up with his entire retinue of, of <laughs> courtesans and musicians and chefs and, you know, basically jalebi makers and they're all lined up and then they get, you know, sort of polished off in short order by the swivel guns uh, of Nader Shah. Shah. It just seems to be that um, the Mughals don't learn very easily at, at this point in time. They do eventually because into the 1610s and by now Malikamba is aging. He's clearly at, at his peak. He's founded a whole new city, a place called Kirki. He's got all these Marathas around them, an army of 50,000. 
but he also until then has the support of the other sultans in the area who are also not very keen for the moguls to start descending into the deccan so you've got the sultan of of bijapur you've got the sultan of golconda they're all financing malikambar because they realize that malikambar is keeping the moguls at bay let's send him money let's enable this 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 you know resistance that he's leading so the moguls do eventually learn that while they can't necessarily beat malikambar when it comes to his guerrilla warfare techniques and so on they can pull the rug from under his feet if they directly negotiate with these other sultans and that actually works so the sultan of bijapur suddenly turns face and becomes a friend of the moguls and malikambar loses support and in fact now he's not just facing facing the moguls coming down from the north but he's also got an enemy behind him because now the bijapur sultans become an ally of the moguls and at this point you see malikambar does stumble he does face a couple of military reversals as well he needs to sue for peace and come to an understanding with the moguls but again he recovers very quickly not only does he resume his fight against the moguls he goes and sacks the bijapur sultan's favorite town of noraspur as well which the sultan had mm. built up uh, from early in his career with great devotion you can still see the ruins can't you to this day outside bijapur exactly as left by malikambar uh, yeah. so you know he he does get his revenge and by the time he dies in in the late in around 1627 if i'm not mistaken or 1626 malikambar's back he's completely back in charge he dies of course the the emperor jahangir has this famous painting describe the painting it's the most wonderful wonderful painting it is where i think uh, if my memory serves well jahangir stand, standing on a globe he's got a, a bow and arrow Yeah, not just a globe. It's a globe on a fish. It's a globe balanced on a fish. I'm looking at it right now. It, it is. It is an extraordinary image. Yeah, go on. Do go on. And and he's taking aim with his bow and arrow at Malikambar's head, which is put up on a spear. If I again right on the on the left side of the picture, and uh, Malikambar's obviously dead. Uh, you know, his head's been cut off. Except this is something the Mughal emperor never achieved. This is something the Mughal emperor would have wished had happened, but in reality Malikambar died somewhere in his 80s, very secure, very confident in a fortress that he had built, uh, and his tomb today in Khuldabad. It's a beautiful tomb. I've been there. Yes. It is. It is. And it sits in a very beautiful location, uh, not encumbered with too many buildings around it. Very striking structure. Almost again, you see a there's a sense of austerity to the building also. It's not a, an over ornate kind of tomb. It's something it, it fits the man lies inside and it's in rather dark stone too in, in the deccan trap <laughs> no, nothing yes. austere about this painting i just feel i feel i need to just tell you more about what amuses me about this painting and and you know maybe it explains the uh, mughal failure to defeat him because jahangir is is standing on a globe you're absolutely right which is balanced on a goat which is balanced on a big fish so one thinks maybe more stable ground would have helped while he's firing arrows into the severed head of malikambar in his uh, fever dream of what never is to be what other what other monuments has he left in india what other things can we see and do people know that they're connected you're in india when i'm not uh, william is but do people know that what is left behind belong to this man malakambro has he been erased from the modern historical consciousness sadly he's mostly been erased because even when people talk of the marathas and their rise in the 17th century they don't draw back that that political legacy to ambar even if the founder of the maratha kingdom shivaji himself did pay tribute to malakambar you don't necessarily see malakambar discussed in biographies of shivaji which i found a, which i find which i think is a huge gap including recent biographies i read a biography last year and it, it barely makes any reference to malikambar or traces malikambar's influence both on shivaji 
as a person, but also in terms of his military strategies uh, when he was fighting the Mughals two or three generations later. Malikambar's tomb, of course, exists, but it's a bit out of the way. What remains really is what is now called the town of Aurangabad in Maharashtra. This was the, this was a village called Kirki. This is where Malikambar built his uh, capital. Uh, he named different parts after the Maratha kings. I hadn't taken that in. Kirki, which Malikambar builds, is Aurangabad. It is Aurangabad because Aurangzeb came down, huh. conquered it, and of course, with, with the Renamed usual it. modesty of kings, named it after himself <laughs> and called it Aurangabad. Uh, now, yeah. of course, the, 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 the current government has changed it again. I think now it's called Sambhaji Nagar after Shivaji's son because Aurangzeb executed Shivaji's son there or near there, and that's why it's called, after, it's called Sambhaji Nagar. But the person who actually founded it is Malikambar. And in fact, if you enter Aurangabad, the old part of the city, with its walls and the big gate, you'll see the gateway that Malikambar is built over there. You'll see several other structures from his time and then structures others have built. I hadn't taken that in. I know those walls well. How extraordinary. That's Malikambar's legacy. That is Malikamba's legacy, except nobody knows it now, nobody speaks of it now, and everybody connects it purely to the Marathas, even though the Marathas themselves uh, did not hesitate to credit Malikamba as a source of inspiration. So, Manu, tell us, what happens to this military slavery system? You get the impression this is something which is present in many courts in the, in, in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, does it, how long does it last? It fades out because what happens is just as there was a huge, it wasn't just the military slaves, right? There were a large number of people coming in from Persia. They'd become governors here. They'd become, you know, noblemen and fighters here. The Habshis would come in through the same trading networks. But what happens is that with European colonialism becoming more and more powerful, a lot of these old networks in the Arabian Sea snap. And that's when you start seeing the, the, the number of Habshis coming into India, as well as the number of Persians immigrating uh, across the Arabian Sea starts to go down. It starts to diminish. And slowly over a period of time, having a Habshi in your court in whatever capacity becomes more of a, a status thing rather than a, a game of large numbers. So in Malikamba's time, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of them in the region. By the 18th century, you don't have that many. You still get a few, don't you, in 19th century Lucknow still clinging on? Oh, yes. You have, you, I think you have them in Wajid Ali Shah's court. Uh, you've got them in the Nizam of Hyderabad's court. But in some ways, these are ornamental presences. These are not, you know, they don't necessarily have roots in the region. They've not set down. They've not become part of the of the power structure. In fact, the, the big difference is that the earlier military slaves, they became part of the power structure. In fact, in Bijapur, in Golconda, in Ahmednagar, in all of these places, you have African men becoming regents to kings. The kings are puppets. It's these African men who are actually in charge. It's a totally forgotten bit of history. I mean, I think our Indian listeners will be as surprised by this astonished. as anyone. Yeah. yeah, and what happens later is just, you know, you, you have African wives and African harem inmates and perhaps a few African bodyguards, including women bodyguards for the Nizam of Hyderabad, if an old story is to be believed. But that, that doesn't quite match what was achieved earlier. And I'm, I'm just sort of minded, every time you've said the word Habshi, um, I, I have a slight cringe on because, I mean, the first time I came across this was in a V.S. Naipaul book where it's, I think it's a, a scene in Brooklyn where an elderly Indian man is going down some steps and he passes some black youths and he sort of spits Habshi at them, mm. which is obviously, uh, you know, a curse word. It is, it is, it is not a good thing. So to come from, you know, that, that, uh, uh, is it an insult these days to use that word? I think it's an insult 
on 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 racial grounds maybe uh, ever since the hafshis lost power because then it just it, they were just reduced to the color of their skin and treated poorly as they were treated in so many other parts of the world but i think when the hafshis were a powerful military elite actually ruling large parts of the deccan it wasn't an insult it was definitely something that that caused people fear it caused awe it caused a degree of dread it co- it had a certain amount of prestige to associate it with it uh, you know the cover of my book rebel sultans shows one of the sultans of bijapur riding an elephant but sitting behind him is a hapshi you know right there in a royal portrait ilkhas khan exactly yeah. class khan he's sitting on the same royal horse with the sultan riding that royal elephant which i think shows exactly the kind of status hapshis had back in the day and when the word wasn't some kind of negative cuss word it wasn't something that was meant to be insulting it was a mark of prestige and status and as you said the 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 state of janjira which is a black african run state continues right up until 1947 just south of bombay yeah it's there in fact the family is still around can we circle back to where we began because i mean just slavery the systems of slavery in india and you started with that astonishing story of um you know your family owning slaves and knowing um some of the the, the descendants of those slaves what does this tell us about india's relationship with slavery can we draw some broad stroke conclusions from this I think now there's a discomfort with it there are there are there are so called twitter intellectuals who claim slavery never existed here and as william was alluding to earlier if at all it existed it was because islamic power came in and they enslaved hindus or mass and sort of exported them to other parts of the world etc etc but the frank truth is there was agrestic slavery to start with by agrestic you mean working the land is that right an agricultural worker yes yes i i give you an example from kerala but it it also exists in tamil nadu across the border uh so it existed definitely in peninsular india i don't know about north india but definitely in peninsular india and remember these are all peninsular india is also about trading societies so i don't know if there are influences from elsewhere but it def- definitely existed here until very very recently um it wasn't just slavery in terms of physical enslavement there was also a caste angle to it especially for agrestic slaves there was a ritual aspect to it i remember my grandmother telling me even when she was growing up the polayars which was one of these erstwhile slave communities who as i said earlier were formally free but for all practical purposes continued enslaved at feasts they couldn't have the same lentils that were served to the upper castes right so the polayar would be served one kind of i think it was called pigeon gram uh, another caste would be served what was called horse gram it was only the upper castes who ate what we what william would know moong dal which is you know what what we all eat today but it was only the upper castes who were permitted that there was unapproachability there was unseeability which is you know they couldn't look at you they couldn't approach your houses they couldn't touch you they couldn't come near you there were all kinds of rules around it we have we have evidence even for the 19th century of the rates for which slaves were sold 6 rupees for a slave in fact british rule exacerbated the problem a little bit because what happened is that you know after a period of political turmoil the east india company comes in and political powers now settled which means there's greater agrarian expansion in parts that had you know where agriculture had ceased and suddenly demand for these agrestic slaves goes up which means prices shoot up you find that children could be separated from mothers wives could be separated from husbands in some places there were rules in the sense that you couldn't send slaves too far off from where they were born so if you belong to village x you could be moved around in the district but not sent off somewhere very far where you completely lose touch with your relatives but the very fact that children could be separated from their parents as children 
I think that uh, tells you that this wasn't by any stretch a pleasant system where, you know, the masters took care of their, their slaves and all of that. No, it was just as traumatic. It was just as emotionally uh, damaging. And it's, it's just a reality we as Indians have to have to face up and, and deal with. Well, Manu, we are so grateful uh, because this has been really an eye-opener of an episode to me, to William. a huge surprise to almost all our listeners. This. Yeah, we're very, very grateful for your time. Thank you very much. Manu Pillai's fantastic book, Rebel Sultans, The Deccan from Kilji to Shivaji, is one of the great books on, uh, on Indian history, and I would recommend it wholeheartedly to anyone. Till next time, then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And me, William. Dalrymple.